I often will draw your attention to something um, from the liturgy, and I want to do that again today. I don't know if you noticed what we just sang. The refrain, this is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. The Gettys were asked at one point because there was a new hymnal being produced um, that wanted to include this song, and they were asked, uh, can we change that refrain to read this way? Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the shame. We stand forgiven at the cross. Poetically, it makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? And the Gettys said no. Why do you think so? Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. It doesn't even, it sort of jars you. We stand forgiven at the cross. I always thought that the Gettys were nice people, but I don't know what their deal is, fixated as they are on the wrath of God. Except that maybe, just maybe, there's something about the wrath of God expressed so fully and so mystifyingly upon the person of Jesus Christ that reveals to us something of his love for us. Maybe that's why they kept it in there, so that we might actually be singing the praises of the gospel and not something less. Today we're looking at Isaiah chapter 60, the second half of Isaiah chapter 60, which is actually one piece, and so it was really difficult to actually um, divide it up over two weeks, but alas, here we are. Just by way of reminder, as you turn to Isaiah chapter 60, and I would encourage you to turn to it in a physical Bible, whether your own or a pew Bible, Isaiah chapter 60, and I would also encourage you to be mindful of those who are around you who may have um, difficulty navigating their Bible. To remind you of the series, the question that's before us is, given what a holy God knows about our stubborn rebellion against the design and rule of His grace, given what a holy God knows about my stubborn rebellion against the design and rule of His grace, what will He do? What can He do? And if there is something that He can do, how will He do it? The question arises because the first 40 chapters of Isaiah um, is about establishing the fact of our stubborn rebellion. Our stubborn rebellion willful rebellion against God's good and wise and gracious design and intent for us and his world. And then the rest, Isaiah 40 on through to the end, is about the double comfort of how that God responds to what he knows to be true about us and about his world. After all, given what we know and how we act, what we know about ourselves and one another and how we act toward ourselves and one another in light of what we know about ourselves, we would expect God 
to abandon us or destroy us. Which, in fact, is precisely what we find among the gods of the nations. Since, after all, they are all but projections of our own human but fallen greatest wisdom and experience. But this is not what we find, as Isaiah has been telling us. Rather, his response is to promise peace to us. To promise to make peace with us, to restore all things to a comprehensive and cosmic human flourishing and the flourishing of all things, which, of course, he can do if he wants. The question becomes, how? How can this holy God make the peace that he has promised with a stubbornly rebellious world without compromising who he is, without compromising his righteousness and his justice and his holiness? How can he be gracious and merciful without compromising his justice and holiness? The answer to this question is what we might call the gospel according to Isaiah. Last week and today, we are considering the result, the promised result of his work to make peace when it is all done. Through Isaiah, he has said, I will do this thing. I promised, I am faithful, I will do this thing, and this is what it will look like. That's what we looked at last week as the passage opened, Arise and shine, for your light has come. And then verse 4, Lift your eyes and see. We pick up our reading of the passage with verse 10 and reading through the end of the chapter. So foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be opened continually, day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. All who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. 
The sun shall be no more your, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall, go, shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall, be, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Isaiah to his people, to God's people today, to us here in this place. So let us go to him and ask for his help. And so, Father, we come to this time and this hour that you have set aside to this your word, which we read in our own language, which is a glorious manifestation of your love that we have become become so accustomed to, that you stoop to lisp to us in words that we can comprehend. And so we are reminded even there how desperately we need your spirit uh, to strengthen us, to grant us courage, to empower us, to give us the skill. Father, to see your word, to recognize it, to respond to it, to hear your word, to recognize it, to respond to it, be changed by it. So to that end, Father, we pray that you would meet with us now, feast us upon your truth, and protect us from error, for we pray it in Jesus. Amen. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? The woman at the well asked Jesus, Where can I go to get this water that you speak of so that I will not be thirsty? The Pharisees, seeking to trap Jesus, said, So, who is my neighbor after all? These are all very similar questions that are getting at the idea of the peace of God, the reign of God, the righteousness of God, the salvation of God that is promised. What must I do, the rich young ruler asks on our behalf, to actually enter into the salvation that is ours through Jesus? What must I do to actually enter into the peace that Isaiah says is promised? Last week we looked at the beauty of that peace and this week we'll look at the bounty of it. Because the beauty of God's peace that is revealed in the first half of this chapter overflows. It's not just a psychological reality, but it overflows into a very visible reality, a reality that is visible to the watching world, a reality of bounty and plenty. The bounty of God's peace includes the comfort of God's peace. The glory of Lebanon 
shall come to you, the, the cypress, the plain, and the pine. Verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. All who despised you shall bow down at your feet. Have you ever felt the affliction of being a sinful person living in a sinful world? I know you have. I have. Have you ever felt the, the, the discomfort and the suffering that comes from being despised? What he is saying here is that those who have despised you, those who have afflicted you, those are now flocking to you in love, respect, and honor. It's a great comfort. It's a comfort that is promised instead of difficulty, but is instead of the affliction. And it's interesting to note that this mysterious bounty, this mysterious comfort that is affected is actually not an escape from, but it's a transformation of our enemies. It's a transformation of our affliction. It's a transformation of those circumstances. He has worked in such a way that those who have afflicted us now come because in us and through us they discover and they see the glory of God's abounding love. Verse 14 is, in a sense, a fulfillment of that great promise in Deuteronomy that says, when you do these things, when you live in this way, the nations will look and wonder what a marvelous God they have. It's what the psalmist says in Psalm 67 when he, when he says, Bless us and keep us, cause your, name to, cause your face to shine upon us, that your name may be known among the nations. The comfort of God's peace is not that we are plucked out of difficult circumstances, but that the difficult circumstances are transformed. So you notice... Similarly, as we get into the New Testament, we see Jesus doing these miraculous things. He's healing. Notice what is happening there. Jesus is saying the promised new age is coming. The new age has arrived. Comfort instead of your affliction, instead of your suffering. But not only so, verses 15 and 16, it's not only comfort, but it is a place of delight. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through. It's a picture there of, of people avoiding you on the road. It's a, people, it's a picture of people going out of their way to stay away from you. It's a picture of utter desolation. And instead of that, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age to age to age to age. 
comfort instead of affliction, delight, rejoicing instead of desolation. That verse 16, the suck the milk of the nations, nurse at the breast of the kings. The idea here is not only will you will they come to you, but they will be the gift of grace. They will be my generous provision for you. I am working even now in the nations to create for you this bounty. So think, if you will, for a moment about Jesus with sinners. What was going on there? It's not that just that Jesus was an interesting guy who liked to hang out on the margins. But by hanging out on the margins, and all the Gospels will tell you, by hanging out with the sinners and tax collectors, he was revealing the promised new age. The delight of the Father to dwell with those who have been desolated by their sin and who are known as such. These are the ones that I come to this is my glory. Think about Jesus with Zacchaeus. You remember that episode? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and all that stuff, right? He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And what does Jesus say? Kids, you can help me, right? Zacchaeus, you come down for what? I'm dining at your house today, right? I must dine at your house today. Why must Jesus dine at the house of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, notorious for cheating people? Does he not know that that would ruin his reputation? No. Brothers and sisters, he knows it would establish his reputation as the one who reveals the glory of the Father to restore and delight in those who would been desolate. It's the same thing going on with Jesus with the woman at the well. He's, by the conventions of the day, ought not to be speaking with her, certainly ought not to be receiving water from her, because he will pollute himself, because do you not know the kind of woman that you are speaking to? And Jesus says, I know exactly who I'm speaking to. I know exactly why I'm speaking to her. Because this is the glory of the Father. He delights to take that which is desolate and make it a cause for delight and rejoicing. Comfort, delight, but not only so, in abundance. Verse 17, instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, Silver instead of wood, bronze instead of stones, iron. He's talking about a, a people who rely on what they can find. And now he is bringing to them stuff they can't even imagine having. And so, for example, in the Revelation vision of this new city, we have streets paved with gold. Brothers and sisters, it is not because there's so much wealth there. The idea is that because the glory of the Lord is dwelling there, even those things that we esteem most precious have become as mundane as asphalt. 
And that's what's going on here. This is what Isaiah is promising. Bronze is good. Gold is better. Iron is good, but silver is better. Wood is good. Bronze is better. Stones are good. Iron is better. Good overseers are good, but peaceful overseers are better. Taskmasters of righteousness. Who would not love to work for a man or a woman that you can describe as righteous? Cut my pay in half. Allow me to work for a righteous man or a woman. The picture that is being painted there is one of superabundance. The bounty of God. And of course, verses 19, it just it builds and builds and builds to this explosion where you're not not only where you're not going to are you going to pave the streets with gold and build things with silver but the fact is you're not even going to need the sunshine anymore because the glory of the Lord will cause it to pale in comparison to his glory light instead of darkness this is a description the last half of 60 is a description of the bounty of God's peace. Brothers and sisters, most of us are happy for a morning of quiet. Just give me a day without conflict. I'm happy. But the promise of God's peace is not just a day without conflict. The promise of God's peace is the promise of something that exceeds our wildest imaginations. Most of us can't even imagine what is beyond, what is better than a day without conflict. It's a day with one another in the presence of God, rejoicing and feasting and celebrating. That is the bounty that is described here. Wow! Now, I know, uh, I've heard, I know of a pastor who was speaking about these sorts of things and he said, man alive, I can't wait to get there. When I die, I'm going to see the glory of the Lord. And he had a heart attack and he went to see the glory of the Lord. And so I'm not going to say that. But you get the point. Part of what Isaiah is describing here is so wildly beyond our imagination that we are tempted to spiritualize it. We are tempted to say, well, it's not really what he means. But what he means is that the bounty of God's peace will be, the effect of it will be beyond our wildest imaginations. Wouldn't it be great to step into that? That's the question that the rich young ruler was asking. When he spoke about the kingdom of heaven, this is the vision he had in mind. What must I do to enter into that vision? You'll remember the episode. He starts out by saying, good teacher, good teacher. What good thing must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? That's a mashup of Matthew and Luke. 
And Jesus says, hmm, it's interesting that you call me good. Why do you call me good? You can imagine the rich young ruler saying, don't get pedantic with me. Just answer my question. Tell me what I must do. Oh, yeah. Well, go and sell everything you have. Give it all to the poor and come and follow me. And he goes away sad. What must we do to enter into the bounty of God's peace? Last week, as I was reading, I said, there's a strange verse in this passage. The peace of God, the, the, the beauty of God's peace, the beauty of this, the glory of God's peace, and then there's this strange verse. And now the bounty of God's peace, the bounty of God's peace beyond our wildest imagination. There's a strange thing there. It's verse 12. Right there in the middle. Right there in the heart of the passage. The nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. And those nations shall utterly be laid waste. There are commentators who will tell you that that verse is so out of keeping with the character of that chapter that surely some editor somewhere along the line found this piece of paper on the floor. They didn't know what to do with it, and they stuck it in there. I'm not kidding you. You can read commentaries that say that kind of thing. But let's assume that that's not what happened. Let's assume that the text as we have it in front of us is the text that the Lord intends for us. And if the Lord is good, wise, and trustworthy, then we have to ask the question, did the Lord, like, have a hiccup or something? What's going on with this? Because it feels so out of place, and it needs to feel out of place. Because it's the verse upon which the entire passage hangs and turns. What must we do to enter into the bounty of God's peace? having been exhorted to arise and shine for your light has come, having been exhorted to lift our eyes and see, having been, having been brought along to celebrate it and learning now of the bounty of it all, how is one to actually enter into it, to enjoy it? Well, we must recognize it, and we must respond to it. You see, Israel's problem, all the way through, from the beginning of Isaiah all the way through to the end, Israel's problem is that seeing, they cannot see. And hearing, they cannot hear. And that was deeply confusing for Israel. Because they say, I hear what you're saying, Isaiah. I just don't understand it. I, I, I see where you're going, but it makes no sense. Seeing, they were not seeing. The exhortation is, see. See the beauty 
of God's peace. This passage, this verse, verse 12, is the hinge of the passage. It's the verse through which we must pass if we are to move from appreciating the beauty of God's peace to actually experiencing the bounty of God's peace. We cannot walk in to experience the bounty of God's peace without seeing and appreciating the beauty of God's peace. You see, the natural bent of our hearts and a deadly tendency that is celebrated and cultivated in us by our culture is to overlook and ignore and explain away the wonder and the beauty of God at work in His world, in our relationships and in our responsibilities and in our conversations, in our circumstances. We want to experience the bountiful blessings of God's peace in all of those areas without acknowledging the beauty of God's peace in all of those areas. You see, here's why. Because recognizing the beauty of God's peace secured by the mighty acts of God's righteousness by which he rescues us requires our recognition and admission and confession that our greatest wisdom and our greatest efforts in which we have made our boast is utter foolishness. That's why, notice this, foreigners now are building up your walls rather than tearing them down. Because these foreigners who have mocked and despised the people of Israel have now seen in them the glory of God at work. The sons of those who afflicted you are now coming bending low in honor of you because they have recognized the foolishness of their own ways. They have recognized that they have esteemed as utter, as utter foolishness that which the Lord has esteemed as the object of his great love. To actually recognize the beauty of God's peace for what it is requires us to recognize and admit and confess that our greatest wisdom is but foolishness. Our greatest strength is but weakness. It requires us to recognize and admit that the righteousness in which we have placed our confidence and which we therefore demand of others is but dirty rags. It requires us to actually honor those who, according to our foolish wisdom and unrighteousness, we have esteemed as dishonorable and unworthy of our attention. And yes, require is the right word here. God's grace requires us to see it and to recognize it and respond to it. For without this, without rightly recognizing, without rightly responding to the beauty of God's amazing grace evidenced in the people and the world around us, we will not experience the bounty of that grace in all of those relationships and responsibilities. It's just a fact. You see, the key to entering into what Hebrews calls that great Sabbath rest 
to settling into that great promised land of God's great salvation, of experiencing the bounty of God's peace, as Isaiah describes it here, is rightly recognizing and responding to the gift of God's peace in all of its beauty and all of its glory. If we fail to see and celebrate the beauty of God's glory and peace stamped upon the very people and circumstances before our very eyes, like those faithless spies who failed to rightly see and recognize the gift of the promised land right there before them, and so shrunk back because of their unbelief, we can be sure that we will not know the bounty of God's peace in that promised land either in those relationships, in those responsibilities, those conversations and those circumstances. Brothers and sisters, this is what Hebrews 11.1 1 is talking about. This is, what it, this is what faith is. Seeing the glory and the beauty of God's peace by his steadfast love on display before your very eyes throughout his world, throughout every cubic inch. Faith is rightly recognizing and rightly responding to the beauty of God's peace at work around us. This is what James is telling us when he says that true religion, to paraphrase and using the terms that we're talking about, that true religion is seeing and celebrating and participating in the beauty and the bounty of God's peace at work in God's world among his people around us. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 1, 18 and following about our tendency to see the glory of God and then failing to rightly recognize it and rightly respond to it. And it breeds death in us and in one another. So many of us love the idea of God's great salvation, but like Peter, we resist it, or like Judas, we actually reject it, or like the rich young ruler are convinced that what we have been doing all along is working out just fine. Thank you very much. But when it comes to rightly recognizing and rightly responding to the joy of God's amazing grace set right before us, we find ourselves too busy, too self-consumed, too committed to lift our eyes, to see, to rise. And to shine. Instead of sheep without a shepherd, we see, as we are taught to see, a caravan of migrants invading our precious kingdom of self. Instead of a neighbor whose life is hurting and whose power is about to be cut off, we see another irresponsible freeloader interrupting our day. Instead of the abounding gift of grace that our spouse and children are, gifts of God's wisdom and provision, Direction, courage, and confidence, and hope, and joy, we see them as somehow hindering our dreams and agendas. We see the glory of God manifest in every moment of our lives, but we turn away and refuse to honor it as such or give thanks for it, and so become futile in our thinking. You see, we enter into this rest, we are welcomed into this rest, into the bounty of God's peace by seeing it and recognizing it and responding to the beauty of God's peace in the glory of God's suffering servant that Isaiah has introduced to us several chapters before. 
that promised redeemer at the end of chapter 59, who we will meet again in chapter 61 as this specially appointed and anointed one. Rightly seeing and rightly responding to that beauty as it is refracted in every moment of every circumstance, in every conversation, in every relationship. In order to partake of the bounty, we must behold the beauty of God's peace presented to us in the body and blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And when we see that, when we practice seeing it at the table, we actually begin to develop skills for seeing it in one another, seeing it in our neighbors, seeing it in strangers, seeing it even in our enemies. And then we will be ushered into the bounty of God's peace. So let's go to him in prayer. And so Jesus, we come marveling at the mind-bending reality that you, God, did not consider that something to be grasped, which alone stuns us, but took upon yourself our flesh and our sin and our penalty and for the joy set before you endured the shame of the cross and the fullness of God's wrath that we might live, oh, Jesus, by your spirit, teach us to stand in slack-jawed amazement at the power of God and of God's love displayed upon the cross and allow us to taste it, to savor it, and to celebrate it, that the world would know that you are the God of peace. For we pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.